You're listening to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates. Recent disasters have raised many questions for us, particularly for parents of children. How do we care for children um, in in a disaster or following a disaster? Even how do we prepare for talking about disaster with children? We have some answers today to those questions. Thanks to our friends at Concordia University, Wisconsin, and their fine support of Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO. Find them in the sponsor section. Look for CU Dub in the sponsor section at kfuo.org. Joining me by phone today, frequent guest here on Faith and Family, Megan Meisler. She's the Director of Christian Education and Licensed Clinical Social Worker with Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida. Megan, welcome back to Faith and Family. Thank you so much. I always love being able to talk with you and your listeners. So thanks for having us. Again. Thanks. Thanks for all the insights you provide for us. I believe last time we talked about uh, the holidays and spending time together as a family and when we have differing opinions and how to get along during the holidays. Very helpful resources and uh, glad to have that archive on our website today. Looking at disasters and how we help children uh, cope with disasters. How do we help them um, you know, how do we manage the the uh, the aftermath of disasters, particularly when it comes to children and answering the questions that, that many parents have? Uh, I would imagine that you perhaps have been quite busy surfing in Florida and experiencing uh, a disaster not too long ago with uh, Hurricane Irma. Uh, give us a, a, an overview of, of your work with Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida and how you serve families. Um, my role specifically, I work especially with our schools um, to serve um, putting counselors in our private schools and um, especially in the Orlando area. But also, you know, Rick and I, who I think is going to be on a little bit later maybe, it, we have a lot of experience in responding to disasters, not just in Florida, but, but throughout um, our country and um, some work over um, even up in North Dakota responding to some flooding and then um, working out in Houston too, being able to be available for that. So what we like to provide is education pieces, but also what we call listening posts to really allow the opportunity for children, for parents, for adults to debrief their experience and understand what are normal reactions and what are kind of abnormal reactions or ones that we need to be aware of. So especially in dealing with students um, and children, that's really important. I did have the opportunity before Irma, literally the day before she was about to hit, um, to spend some time with some parents, just even talking about how to prepare kids for a disaster that you know is going to take place and what's helpful for kids and then what to do in response after the disaster has passed. Let's talk about that. Let's start with that preparation uh, for if you anticipate or know that a potential disaster is coming your way. How do you prepare for that? And even if you don't know the disaster is coming, but there there may be the potential for it. There's always the potential for a disaster. What are some day to day things we can do as well? Let's talk about that. How do you help parents prepare for a disaster, particularly one that's imminent? Right. So, so I have three kids myself, and they range from five to ten. So I, I know this. I'm a parent, and you know we had Irma in the news. Irma was talked about for probably two weeks before it hit, and we knew it was coming. And so that raises a lot of anxiety in our children. Even if you don't let your kids watch the news or whatever, they know they can experience the tension and the anxiety that goes on with adults. So in preparing kids, if you know a disaster is coming, it's important to help them be part of the process of planning and getting prepared. Um, Kids work better when they know what's coming. And in disaster times, you don't always know what's coming, but you know how you're getting ready. So 
preparing your safe room, having them put stuff in there that they like and that they're going to need to hang out with and, you know, spend some time without electricity in, which is hard if we like video games, but we managed at our house. Um, But it is including them on that preparation process and letting them know the facts of what's going on. Um, I think what often happens in parents, though, and it happened in my home as well, um, is that, you know, we get asked these, like, very serious questions by our children, like, is our house, are we going to lose our house? And we want to, as parents, react and say, no, of course, we're not going to lose our house. But I'm really saying that because of my own anxiety and the fact that I don't even want to think about, right, losing my house. And so it's better when we respond to our children with facts and what we know and what we're doing to get ready for things, um, how we're going to keep them safe and how we are going to plan as a family and work together in that process. So I, we don't want to overpromise children what's going to happen. We just want to make them aware of the facts and what we're doing, what's in our control, and how we can be prepared. I'm glad you mentioned that sometimes we say things for our own sake more than for our children, or we react in a certain way, perhaps uh, for our own sake than for our children. Mm -hmm. Let's talk more about that. What um, our response, the way, the tone in which we respond to questions, how that makes a difference, um, or does it make a difference when children ask questions like that? You you mentioned the, the a, a very typical question: Are we going to lose our house? Uh, and and the way in which we respond does that make a difference? Yeah, because um, your response, if you're very reactive and um, you know, kind of are heightened on your own, what you're really doing to your child is you're dismissing the fact that they are afraid. And we don't want to dismiss their fears, but we want to give comfort. So we have to recognize, and I think it's fine to admit to our children that we are nervous too, because they're feeling nervous and they need it to be normalized in a way that it's okay to feel nervous. I'm, I'm nervous about this situation too, but we need to work to give comfort. So especially with children who are younger, like elementary children, we want to be very objective. You know, we have a guinea pig and my daughter was very concerned about what are, what's happening with the guinea pig and what do we need for the guinea pig? So put her in charge of a list. Here's all the things we need to keep the guinea pig safe and where we're going to keep the guinea pig, you know, during the storm. So when you can break it down and be kind of factual for them and help them brainstorm ways to um, respond to the storm and things that are in their control, we know finding things that are in your control during anxious times helps to ease the anxiety because we normally have anxiety about things that are out of our control. So when we can help them give them a plan, assure safety in, in the ways that we can assure safety and give comfort without dismissing their fears, that's going to be the most important for our kids. Other things that we can do to prepare our children or ourselves as parents for a potential disaster? I always get asked the question of, should I let my child watch the news? Mm. Should I let them mm-hmm. see what's going on? And um, that was a question we processed a lot before the storm because in Orlando, I mean, you couldn't even watch regular TV. It was everywhere. And so we talked about, you know, what on the news can you let the children see that's objective and not um, eliciting more emotion? You know, so what a hurricane looks like or, you know, what a storm may look like. You know, what what's the vision of it? Or we've even had some fires here. You know, what does that look like? Like, let's be objective, what we can expose them to. But then let's limit it. 
Um, so it needs to be limited. Having the TV running in the background or the radio all of the time about what's going on with the storm can really elicit that emotion and that anxiety that doesn't always need to be there for working to be objective. Great point. Sometimes the uh, the way in which it's uh, the information is presented can be sensationalized and not objective and uh, not very healthy for children, not well for any of us, but uh, right. especially for children who may not be able to weigh that out and to uh, to to really filter out what's sensationalism and what is uh, what is really objective. What's the 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 ultimate truth here? Mm-hmm. Anything else uh, in terms of preparing them we'll get to during and after a disaster? No, I, I think that that's, that's the goal is don't, don't um, alienate your child if part of your preparation plans include them. A lot of people think that will cause more anxiety, but it really helps them be tangible about what's about to happen and that they've had a role in preparing the family. And it, and it eases anxiety to be able to do that. So at the time of a disaster, anything specific about at the time of a disaster? I know, you know, just recently with Hurricane Irma, many families waiting, uh, some in the dark without power. Um, How do we care for and comfort children during those times? Well, um, at our home, we lost power for um, over 48 hours. and, And I think I needed to recognize how anxious that made me first. And frustrated and that we were all just a bit more irritable in that time frame and so I can't expect my kid to be on their best behavior when I know this situation is making me as an adult irritable so there has to be a bit more um, forgiveness that takes place maybe a bit more leniency um, we saw a lot of families that will come together figure out different activities to do you know ways to stay cool in Florida when you have no electricity um, but it is about giving more grace in moments when you're irritable, which is difficult. Um, so that's why I think that whole preparation piece needs to be about, you know, okay, so what are we going to do? Here's, here's all these different activities. You know, I saw people buying cards and puzzles and all those different things that you could do while, you know, you're in that flux. We know for kids that getting back to their normal routine is one of the most important ways to um, recover from disaster. Getting back to that set schedule, going back to school, you know, having those set bedtimes and everything, that is very helpful in the recovery process. So when you're in that limbo time, um, trying to bring some structure to your day would be important. You know, we're going to do this for a couple hours, and then at, you know, 2 o'clock we're all going to eat this lunch and so whatever you can do to bring some structure to that time is going to be important as well. So organizing your time, even though you may not know how long you're going to be without electricity or other utilities, uh, trying to bring some structure of some kind to that. Yes, most definitely. Post-disaster and the feelings that children may be dealing with or that we may as parents be dealing with ourselves, uh, suffering loss, whether it's loss of property or the questions of uh, loved ones that they may or may not be able to get in touch with. You know, they, I know that yeah. was a big question for many with uh, many phone lines down and power down. It was uh, difficult for many to get in touch with loved ones to find out if they were okay after the storm. What are some of the questions and, and things that children deal with and what can we as parents do to be helpful? Yeah, and, and you know, we're, 
still in our community around here you know, going through that, especially a, um, a large population in Florida just trying to make contact with Puerto Rico, too. Um, so that's still kind of going on here a lot. But but what we need to understand about kids is when they go through a disaster, it changes their worldview in some rights. Um, so then we talk about the next hurricane coming and the next one and the next one. So now you're almost in this state of waiting for the next thing to happen, where before the storm, we lived in a day where it wasn't, like, that was never on our minds. So there, there is this kind of being preoccupied with what's going to happen next, because now you've changed my worldview. I understand storms exist and what they can do. So now I think they're going to exist more often. Mm. Um, so being aware that, that that changes the worldview. You might have more questions about storms and fear of storms. We, we talk about that disasters are abnormal. So what would be a normal reaction to an abnormal situation? There aren't really. But <laughs> if, you, if these abnormal reactions last for more than three months in children, then we begin to get concerned and would really want you to reach out for some assistance. We do know when kids go through difficult times such as disasters, they're going to have what we call regressive behavior. So maybe your child was really good at sleeping independently, and right after the storm they don't want to sleep by themselves anymore. Um, that's, that's, a, that's a typical reaction we see in children. When, when something abnormal has happened, they're going to regress and act younger than they had previously to the storm. We do believe that in about, you know, two to three months, they should be able to get back to where they were unless there's something more complicated going on in the situation. And then we would recommend that you seek outside help to kind of get that child back to the state that they were operating before the storm occurred. Now, we're talking about hurricanes and in many instances, especially this last time around, I know uh, for some they experience experienced some devastating loss. But for many, uh, we were prepared for a big disaster, and for many, it was not as bad as we had anticipated. Mm-hmm. And so, it, it, you know, coming out of that, we're dealing more with feelings of fear because of uh, the the fear we experienced waiting for the hurricane. What about for those who experienced significant loss? Uh, whether it was loss of home and and all of the you know their earthly possessions and being uprooted and located to a, a new home or a temporary housing situation and the the feelings that they must be dealing with, how do we help them cope, especially during that time of transition where you you yourself don't know where you're going to be living for the next month or the next year? Yeah, so so at one of our schools, we did have um, a single mom with six children lose her whole house and um, is having to live in temporary housing with another family of four in a very small apartment. And um, from the school side, I I feel like what the school can bring, especially in those transitional times, is the structure and routine, right? So we're going to go to school, and we know what's going to happen at school. Our teachers are great at showing, you know, at following the schedule and, you know, being on top of those things for us. But when we go back home, we don't know what's going to happen, or we don't know where I'm going to sleep tonight, or what I'm going to have for dinner, or if I'm going to have dinner, and all of those things. And then especially for kids, they, losing objects that are important to them, children are very concrete. Um, so not having that stuffed animal or not having just that, you know, your own space 
causes so much more disruption in their daily life. So really then their safe haven becomes the place where the structure and routine and everything is the same, like at school. And at home, it's still in flux or transition, like you said. So it's so important that we still allow the children to have those routines throughout their day in the school setting and that teachers and and other people in the children's life are aware that, you know, if if I don't have a home to go to, then doing my memory verse or my spelling test doesn't quite become my priority anymore. Not that it shouldn't be eventually, but that in those times of transitions, we do have to practice some more grace. Um, I saw a really good article that was out in Orlando here right after the storm that was encouraging teachers for a week or two after the storm, don't present new material because the children, some of the ones especially that have been so severely affected by the storm, aren't able to obtain or process that yet. And And they need that consistency and structure of what you had been working on and presenting new material at this time is not gonna be beneficial, nor do we believe that they'll fully be able to retain that. That's an interesting point, that the time following a disaster would be a time just to aim at restoring structure and, and, and things that are familiar rather than introducing something new. Makes sense. Right. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I, the storm impacted Orlando so much differently in southwest Florida um, as well, and then continues, you know, to have the after effects of things. and. You know, things that you don't always hear about is like the constant flooding or, or even the smell in our community sometimes. And for children who are very sensory oriented, those things throw them off too. So the different, there's been like a sewage smell throughout Orlando. And, you know, I have one child who's very sensitive to those kind of things who's, who, who like mm-hmm. won't go outside because can't stand the smell. So we have to think about all these other things that take place after a disaster that affect our senses as well and how they impact our children. Sure. Or, you know, what if a child develops a fear of something, say it was a, an accident, uh, they, you know, it was a, a car accident or, or some mm-hmm. other kind of accident, and they, they develop a fear. They don't want to get in a car anymore because of that fear. How, what can we as parents do to, to help them overcome that fear and to return to um, you know, back to, to, to normal, back to our, our normal routine and normal structure uh, if they develop a fear of something, whether it's, uh, you know, or with all the flood going on, they're uh, afraid to go around water at all water. because of all the, mm-hmm. the flooding. Well, children play out their um, fears or their worries or their anxieties in different ways throughout developmental stages. Um, I will never forget a story about a school after 9-11 where, you know, kids were building Lego towers and flying planes into it, and it was very upsetting to the teachers. But as in the field that I'm in, that's actually how the child plays out their fears and begins to maintain control over the environment that they felt like they couldn't control. And that's actually them working on, you know, that um, fear and that anxiety that's going on in them. As children get older, they may want to talk it out, which is hard for adults. So let's say the mom was in the car accident with the son who doesn't want to get in the car anymore. What that son really needs is probably to retell that story of the car accident over and over again. But if the mom was in that disaster too, she's going to have a hard time being able to listen to that over and over again. That's really how a child can 
um, maintain, again, control over a situation that was outside of their control is to talk about it and process it. When we get into adolescence, it's more of writing or drawing. Um, or even my son, he doesn't draw. He does these things on the computer that I don't know how he does it, but it's amazing. Um, and that's his way of processing it. I would say the biggest thing for parents is when we see our kids expressing themselves in this way is not to have that re- try so hard, which is sometimes impossible, to have that reaction of, oh, my goodness, or, you know, I can't hear this right now. Like, this is making me anxious. But really what our children need is to play it out, to process it out, to talk it out. Um, and that's where they have mastery over things that happen that are outside of their control. And that is particularly due to where they are developmentally? Is it- yes. You know, I, I have a 10-year-old son. You're not, you're not going to probably see him on the floor playing out things. Mm-hmm. He, he, he likes to process it out loud a little bit and talk it through or ask questions. Where my 5-year-old, she might draw you a picture. Or she might get her little characters out and, you know, pretend they're all getting hit by a hurricane. Um, so it does depend on where they are developmentally, you know, more than the adolescent age, we see a lot more students expressing themselves either through writing stories or poems or drawing or even posts on social media, things like that, that elicit sometimes a reaction in adults that, oh, we need to be really concerned. And I'm not saying that we don't need to be concerned. We do need to monitor that. But our, that's how our children process, too, by expressing themselves verbally or asking questions or retelling a story over and over again until they maintain the mastery over it. With just a, about three or four minutes left, what do we need to be mindful of six months out, a year out? Are there things that we need to be aware of or uh, need to be mindful of, you know, half a year, a year down the road? Yeah, we, we do need to be mindful of... Um, the regressive behaviors that I talked about. So if a child was able to do some things independently before the storm and they have regressed and that regressive behavior is prolonged, still is still there six months down the road, they still won't go back to sleeping on their own, then that's where we're going to need to get some more support and allow um, our child to work on that because we do want them to be independent um, and capable and competent you know, individuals. So if we see regressive behavior prolonged for that amount of time, also we can see um, separation anxiety with parents not wanting to leave their parent. Um, School-age children can begin to understand that if I'm with mom and dad, they are safe, and if I'm not with them, they're not safe. And that can happen right after a disaster. But again, if that prolongs and that separation anxiety is continuing into six months or a year, then we really need to be able to um, get some other resources for for the child. Um, we do recognize that, you know, it changes your worldview mm-hmm. when a disaster happens. And, and to an extent, that's okay. But if it's causing their day-to-day function to suffer and, it's, and we're into six months or a year, Um, then we need to be concerned. But I'll tell you, our children are resilient. They really are. They really are resilient. They can find um, 
the beautiful rainbows that have been in Orlando recently in the sky and, um, you know, and voice that and voice all the great things that have happened. Um, we have seen such a rise in our community of children gathering up supplies to send to Puerto Rico, to send to Southwest Florida. Um, so they really are resilient and um, maybe sometimes more than adults. And so maybe we um, need to learn from them in some ways, too, um, of that resiliency. My guest today, Megan Meisler, Director of Christian Education, Licensed Clinical Social Worker with Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida. Megan, thank you so much for the insights you've provided for us today. You're welcome. Thanks for having me again. Concordia University, Wisconsin, and Mequon overlooks a half mile of beautiful Lake Michigan shoreline. CUW campus is located 15 miles north of Milwaukee with over 70 undergraduate majors, 28 graduate degree programs, and doctorate programs in pharmacy, physical therapy, occupational therapy, and nursing practice. CUW offers online learning and accelerated learning at one of nine Wisconsin centers and one in St. Louis. Traditional or accelerated education, CUW has the program for you. CUW.edu. This is Life Issues with Brad Mattis, president of Life Issues Institute. A pro-life group in Ireland called Both Lives Matter conducted a public billboard campaign which touted 100,000 people are alive today because they've kept Britain's pro-abortion laws out of Northern Ireland. Of course, some pro-abortion individuals complained, so the Advertising Standards Authority looked into it and ruled Both Lives Matter is right. This group and others, like my colleagues from the Society for the Protection of Unborn Children, have worked tirelessly over the years to protect unborn babies of Northern Ireland. It's great to see them vindicated by an official entity, but most of all, 100,000 babies have been saved from abortion. Think about it for a moment. This victory will span generations, saving countless people because of their hard work. Well done. Follow us on Twitter at Life Issues USA and stay informed, more informed than you've ever been. Three things make a believer. Oratio, meditatio, tentatio. Prayer, meditation, and growth. Which is why every weekday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. we bring you Oratio, an hour of solace, contemplation, scripture, sacred music, and faith. Orazio. The dawn breaks with prayer every morning on Worldwide KFUO. What are all the things you witness online in a day? Cats playing piano, selfies on your feed, your friend's picture being turned into a nasty meme that's been shared 50 times, 51, 52. When someone's being bullied online, it's hard to know what to do. Now you can speak up with the witness emoji. It looks like an eye in a speech bubble, and it's in the symbol section near the clocks in your phone. You'll let the world know it isn't cool, and you'll let your friend know you care. Learn more at eyewitnessbullying.org. Brought to you by the Ad Council. Join Lutheran Immigration and Refugee Service and congregations across the country as we celebrate Refugee Sunday, a time to lift up the gifts that migrants and refugees bring to our country and to reflect on Christ's message to welcome the stranger. Together, we can continue the mission of welcoming, embracing, and empowering newcomers. Visit lirs.org kit. 
to download the Refugee Sunday Kit for your congregations, including worship guides, bulletin inserts, videos, and more. LIRS.org slash kit. Hi, I'm Gary Duncan, the General Manager of Worldwide KFUO. We promote our various programs. We ask you to listen to your favorite show. We ask you to support our broadcast ministry, and we thank you for that support. But maybe we don't ask you to pray for us as much as we should. Please pray for the staff, management, radio hosts, and volunteers here at Worldwide KFUO. Pray that the message of salvation through Christ is heard clearly by listeners around the world. Pray that we continue to reach into those areas that are hostile to the Word of God. Pray that KFUO continues to reach those people desperately needing to hear the good news message. And pray that God continues to bless us financially through the gifts we need to continue our broadcast ministry. Thank you for listening, supporting, and praying for Worldwide KFUO. You truly are appreciated. We are the messenger of good news. AM850 in St. Louis, worldwide at kfuo.org. Welcome back to Faith and Family. I'm Andy Bates discussing today the personal aftermath of disasters. How do we care for others? How do we care for ourselves? What can we expect following a disaster? Joining me by phone today, the Reverend Dr. Rick Armstrong. He's a licensed marriage and family therapist with Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida. Dr. Armstrong, welcome to Faith and Family. Thank you very much. Pleasure to have you with us, and thanks for taking some time to share some insights with us today. Tell us about your work with Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida. Well, um, Lutheran Counseling Services has been in the Orlando area for 28 years. Um, I've been the director for four years, but been with them professionally for 13, and and so. Um, um, we do individual marriage, uh, family counseling, organizational uh, um, consultations, and disaster response, primarily disaster response in the areas of spiritual-emotional care for survivors as well as for um, uh, caregivers, pastors, teachers, PCEs, um, other church workers, and on-the-ground uh, disaster care coordinators. And all. So we try to support them uh, as they do their work, but also provide that work as needed as well. That's kind of a nutshell. I had the opportunity to talk with Megan Meisler about caring for children and and helping mm-hmm. them prepare for a disaster and then what to expect following a disaster. I'd like to now discuss with you what uh, what we can do as as adults to uh, to prepare ourselves when we know that a disaster may be coming, when one may be imminent, and uh, also for others as well. Uh, how are what are some things that we should be mindful of if we know that a disaster is coming? Um, what can we do to prepare ourselves for that? I know that there are many things, you know, physically that we can do, and you know, disaster preparedness kits and things like that. But what about uh, from the emotional and mental health side of things? What can we do uh, to prepare when we know a disaster is imminent? Well, I think the the care the preparing physically, as you put it is very important in preparing emotionally and spiritually as well because part of the realization as we live in this world is that there is um 
there's only so much of our lives, in fact, very little of our lives that is really under our control. And so the things that we need to do to prepare ourselves physically, our home uh, in Florida, it's recommended that you have enough um, food water supplies for three days um, because if need be, uh, you're on your own for three days. And, uh, and so depending upon what the storm, what the disaster might be, it is to have those preparations done, and that gives people peace of mind that I have done all I can do right now physically to take care of my house, to take care of my family. If it's felt that it's really going to be bad, a lot of people have learned, then um, board up the house and leave the area is the smartest thing you can do for yourself and for others, especially if there's other needs within the house of, uh, of people who have more severe um, health problems or whatever that that could be without electricity or whatever wouldn't be good. So it's just so that preparation is really important emotionally and spiritually as well because it it does leads us to do all we can do. The other part of that, the direct spiritual emotional, is just taking the time with self and reminding self that I've done what I can do. I I am a good and capable person. God loves me. God is not going to leave me. Um, and no matter what happens, I'm going to be okay. That's the promise from our God. And uh, I have, may have to adjust my definition of okay, but I'm going to be okay in my relationship with God, Christ Jesus. So, so it's, it's, a, it's really a matter of, of getting self ready for what I can do and what I can't do and then what I might do as you start to prepare other scenarios. What about during the, uh, the the time of a disaster, um, trying to uh, to care for others, maybe as parents caring for children or caring for older adults during a disaster, and the 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 fears that we have when you know, uh, for example, when a hurricane hits. I know that's been the most recent experience in Florida, uh, and in Texas and other places in the the Caribbean as well. The, during the the disaster itself and coping with the fears that we might be experiencing during that time, yet also balancing that with caring for the needs of others, whether it be older adults or young children, um, how do we how do we cope with those fears during that time? Well, and I'm not, I'm not sure what all Megan said, but she and I work together with a lot of this. But it is the first thing that that I try to remember to help people do is to normalize. Normalize the, the, the reactions that you're having. Normalize the questions that are there. Normalize the fears. I often say to folks um, in times of disaster lovingly um, as they tell me that I'm, I'm experiencing this fear. I'm not sleeping well at night. Uh, I can't concentrate. I, um, I feel like everything's out of control, and I just try to ask them the question of, have you ever been through a major crisis and disaster? And and they say no, and I say, well, this is pretty normal for those times. Well, we understand normal reactions is um, that there's a fear of future disasters. There's a fear, fear of future storms, um, usually in areas of hurricanes. The, the next time the Florida afternoon thunderstorm comes rolling through, the first one after a hurricane, it causes a lot of people of uh, pause for a lot of remembrance of what took place during the the storm the hurricane um there's a loss of interest in day-to-day activities there usually is sleep disturbances and night terrors in adults as well as kids because it's in our sleep where we process the events of the day and where we process the traumas and so those aren't going to be 
unsettled times in a lot of ways. There's regressive behaviors that people kind of go back to some old ways um, because you know it's it's what we do. We regress after traumas. There's anger at God. There's stress reactions, both indirect and, and direct stress reactions toward others, toward ourselves. Uh, all of those are normal reactions of people in these abnormal times. And uh, what I try to say to people in those times, I mean, there, there's a lot of discussion that goes around immediately in the disaster areas of um, the fear that this person has PTSD or that person has PTSD. And we try to, we try to say to folks that if these normal reactions continue on 9 to 12 months, that's when someone might be diagnosed with PTSD. But to have those reactions initially is normal. And the reality is we don't diagnose PTSD or the DSM-5 says not to diagnose that for 9 to 12 months following a major trauma because the, the benchmarks of PTSD by and large are normal reactions in the initial days and initial phases. That makes sense. I, I believe so. Megan mentioned that in children, uh, one of the the best things we can do to uh, to help them uh, you know, post a disaster, even during the the time of a disaster, such as you know, during a hurricane when you have no utilities, uh, no electricity, things like that, to to try to maintain some. Uh, some sense uh-huh. of structure or uh, normal routines as much as possible. Is that true for adults as well? To you know, the sooner we can be- get back to our normal routine, the sooner we are to uh, to I guess back to homeostasis or to to being healthy. Right. Yeah, I think that for for a lot of people, coping one of their coping mechanisms is doing and accomplishing, and that can be a very helpful piece whenever. So much of our life has changed and so much is is out of our control. Then I want to do things that is in my control. You know, many people in my my town, my neighborhood, I mean, as soon as the winds, it felt safe that uh, we got out of our house. We started cleaning up our yard. We um, cut up the tree that got uprooted. We did all of those things. We prepared meals. We got back together. We did meet neighbors. We hadn't met before. And, um, And so it's about the doing that's important in order to accomplish this. And it is, it is a real encouragement that we have to people as you feel the energy to get up and do that can be helpful for you and you can gain a sense of empowerment, a sense of control over the uncontrollable situations. It's also real important to, to listen and tell the stories. Uh, it's kind of interesting as you go around our city these days and the clients I, I see that... Um, it's the beginning of every session is the question, and they ask the question of me, I ask the question of them. So how, how was the storm for you? And so we retell the stories, and we retell the stories and in order to make them real, but also to make the survival real and to be reacquainted once again with the fact that God protected me and I survived, and even though there's a lot of damage or something maybe, um, I'm still here and my family's still here. And we know that God survived. And the telling of the stories reminds us of that once again. So so that doing and that talking and all is very helpful as well. What are uh, some of the common questions that you receive after a disaster that for those who are from those who are uh, still struggling with the, the, the feelings or the fears after a disaster? 
there's there's obviously a question of um, why. Um, why did this happen to us? Why were we then earmarked? Um, why did this happen to us? Uh, or there's also questions, uh, survivor guilt, uh, sometimes causes people to say, why not? Why Why did my, my two neighbors' house get destroyed and mine's doing pretty well? And uh, so that's heard a lot of times. Uh, there's anger. There's anger at God, um, and that's expressed in many different ways because we do have this, many people have this idea that, uh, I believe erroneously, they have this idea that God controls the events of the world like a puppet, and um, and that is their way of security. Maybe it's not how they feel before the disaster, but they sure wish it was that way during the disaster so they would get hurt. And so there's some anger that God did protect them and fix them over this. I often hear the question of how long, how long is this going to endure, how long is my my city, I remember working in New Orleans following Katrina. It was a constant question of how long is my city going to be disrupted this way? Um, is the culture of our city going to change because of this? Uh, when can we get back to our to what life is like before this one? And uh, those are natural questions and pieces, I believe. People are trying to find their way through their find their way to their new normal and find their way through this wilderness experience of his time with no power and and home destroyed and those kind of things, trying to find their way to the new normal as the people of Israel try to find their way to the promised land. And the biggest movement that people have to make is the emotional. God's going to be with me as my life changes. I don't say that to people early on in the past. I just know that that's best thing we can say to people as they ask questions is maybe not much at all. It's um, listening, listening, encouraging them to talk, uh, uh, pray with them as they ask for prayer, uh, remind them um, that, that God is with them and that we are going to be with them. We're not going to leave them alone in that way and follow them. How can can serving others be a, a a key part of the healing process following a disaster, particularly a disaster that it's affected a community? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, I, I, I think once again, it's the, it is the, well, if we're serving each other who have, like in my neighborhood, uh, the, the day after Irma came through is um, my neighbor came over, two of my neighbors came over and helped my son-in-law and I, cut up this tree, we went over and helped them uh, fix up things in, in their yard and, and their house and everything. And, and again, there was that sense of helping others. There was that sense of God using us to work in the midst of this. There is something that we can do. I think we all, uh, many people throughout our nation and our world, as we saw what happened in Houston, as we've seen what's happened in Irma, um, as we now start to look at the devastation in the Caribbean and Puerto Rico and all, um, it's, it's the compassion side of us, uh, the side of us that realizes what God has done for us and here's opportunities for us to do for others. And we reach out and we, we, uh, we make use of the gifts that God has given to us and 
physically as well as emotionally, and we follow the what he's called us to do to serve our neighbor and to let him be known by that service. So I think that's important. For those of us who have not experienced a disaster uh, or one to the magnitude that that uh, another person has, what do we need to understand in order to be helpful, in order to be patient and understanding? What are some things that might be helpful for us to to know that we might be more helpful in that healing process following a disaster that one might experience? I guess, Andy, I... I, at the base root, try to, I remember and I try to teach that the reactions and the processes that take place following a community disaster, a storm, earthquake, a tornado, those processes are the same process that we go through in times of grief and loss. It's a grief and loss process. And where we might say that I've never been through a tornado, I've never been through an earthquake, I've never been through a hurricane, I think most of us can reflect back and say, I have lost something, or I have taken a major hit in life, and I went through this period of time of um, deep struggle, followed by God bringing me out to the new normal. And so I think one of the things we can do is reflect upon those times. They may have not been a community disaster for an individual disaster in that way, and we can reflect on what was helpful for us during this time. How people reached out as how people surrounded us, how people cared, how sharing the memories for help. We can we can learn and know from that, um, and use that experience to learn and grow and help others. Any other advice that you would? encourage us to consider maybe as as a congregation we've talked more about this from the individual perspective as a congregation what can congregations do to be helpful or to be to to be mindful following a disaster are there specific things that that we need to be mindful of that perhaps we haven't thought of before well i i guess two things that come to my mind as you ask that question i i think is first of all to understand as best we can that we cannot predict everything that other people are going to need. And we also cannot put ourselves in a position of saying, this is what they ought to do. Um, It's hard for us to be able to really um, let people at times have to wander their way through. So it's important for us to make ourselves available, not always trying to go in and fix. But there's things we can do in the sense of giving gifts, giving gift cards, giving supplies for all people. And I think it's a helpful piece for congregations to gather together, leadership, whatever, and just have a discussion around not necessarily what we ought to do, but what can we do. And there is some things that some congregations can do and have resources to get that others don't. And so uh, take the time to understand what God, how God has blessed you in your area and your means to help where others may be put some people, some congregations have connections to transportation services. Some have connections to, I don't know, some manufactured goods that are there or have connections to discounts on gift cards or whatever. And so you find out what is, what's among us that we can do best. And you go and do that in that way. Um, 
But it's also about, you know, if you're directly in contact with the survivors, it's giving them time, be patient. And too often we, we want people to feel better so that we feel better. And we need to realize that's, that's manipulative care. And what we need to do is, is to give care that's, that's real and honest. I believe you mentioned earlier that it's it's pretty common to experience uh, those emotions, those feelings of loss and, and, and that struggle nine to 12 months uh, after a disaster. What if we, we get to that, that nine to 12 months and we're still struggling or, or following that nine to 12 months after that nine to 12 months and we're still feeling, you know, experiencing those, those strong feelings or those feelings of fear? What... Uh, what do we need to look for, and what can we do? What action uh, should we take? I think we we need to realize that we have a condition going on in our lives that we don't we have discovered we don't have the ability to control, and we need to go seek help. If we had a physiological problem in our lives, we need to stop control. We feel the permission to go find a physiological doctor to take care of that. We need to do the same thing with our emotional needs. And if our emotional needs are really blocking us and causing us great struggle in our own personal lives as well as our relationships and, uh, and all, then we need to go seek out some help and uh, maybe start off with people that we know, know of good counseling centers or uh, rehabilitation centers or whatever, and we need to go and ask their help to help us find a place. For some people, that's going to be that's going to show itself not just in those symptoms that I described, but that's going to show itself in um, in um, uh, in the use the overuse of addictive substances, alcohol, and others. It's going to show itself in um, in um, in anger issues, displays, even domestic violence. Uh, there's sharp increases of all of those following disasters in the community. And if we find ourselves in that position, we need to go seek help. As we would seek help, there's a physiological problem. My guest today, the Reverend Dr. Rick Armstrong, licensed marriage and family therapist and director of Lutheran Counseling Services of Florida. Dr. Armstrong, thank you for being my guest today. Thanks for the insights on uh, what we might, how we might cope and manage uh, following a disaster. Well, thank you for the opportunity and blessings to your audience and especially to those who are experiencing um, losses, disaster, be that uh, community-wide or even in the small. You've been listening to Faith and Family, produced by Worldwide KFUO, the official broadcast ministry of the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. Your support is vital for this program to continue. To learn about giving opportunities, call Mary at 314-996-1518. Or you can make a gift safe, secure, and easily online at kfuo.org. Thank you for listening and supporting Faith and Family on Worldwide KFUO.